The Tom Woods Show, episode 1989. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey folks, it does not matter where we are in the school year. It is never too late to join the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum, which will give your kids an unfair advantage and which features 400 videos on history taught by me. And if you do decide to join the curriculum, of course, join through my link because through my link only will you get $160 worth of free bonuses. So check out my link, ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. Well, national divorce is actually a topic of conversation these days. And today, in light of that, I'm sharing with you a talk I gave not too long ago, just October 2nd, 2021, at an event sponsored by the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. And I talked about the idea of secession, and I talked about it from the point of view of American history and constitutionalism, questions like that. But then more broadly, the moral question of why we ought to favor a solution like that, at least the beginnings of a solution. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this. And here we go. Tom Woods. All right. Good job. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very, very glad to be here. So what I'm going to do today is not try to persuade you that secession is desirable under our present circumstances, because I feel like if you, either you see that or you don't. And if, if that hasn't become obvious yet, I'm not going to be the one who's going to get you off the fence. I'm going to assume that a great many of us, if not all of us, more or less see that. So what I want to do instead is make a case for the legitimacy of secession within the context of U.S. history. And then before that, I'm going to spend some time laying the groundwork for why secessionist movements more generally should be favored. Now, one of my favorite memories, when I, by the way, this bottle of water, I think doesn't have a completely flat bottom. So if I rest it here, it tips over. So just, just be patient with me. I have to lie it down on its side. There we go. One of my favorite memories when it comes to talking about secession is from 2015. I was in Houston for a Mises Institute event headlined by Ron Paul. Now, the media was there. There was a Washington Post reporter in the audience. Now, why would the Washington Post care about an event, indeed headlined by Ron Paul, but he was a retired congressman by that time? Well, of course, because of Rand Paul coming up for re-election in the U.S. Senate. And they thought, we'll embarrass his father so as to discredit him. A strategy they've tried for a long time never works. They keep on doing it. Well, this was an event dealing with, quite presciently, the topic of secession. And they thought, ha, we'll show what an extremist Rand Paul's father is when he gives a speech about secession, because we all know how extreme that is. Well, I got wind of this, and I thought, I can't... I, I was saying words that I don't usually say on the Tom Woods show when I found out that that was the plan. Or we bleeped them. I think there's been at least one time on my own show that I bleeped myself out. I said the word, and then we bleeped it. Because I thought, who are these control freaks and you know, mind control, thought control people? Who are they to tell us what we're allowed to talk about and what's respectable and what isn't? 
So I went out there and gave a talk. Now, nobody knew, other than the people at the Mises Institute, nobody among the attendees knew there was a Washington Post reporter there. But I knew. Old Woods here knew that reporter was out there. And I didn't know which of these SOBs it was, but he's out there. And I gave my entire speech to that person. The whole speech was aimed as a laser beam right at him. And the speech more or less went like this. I explained what secession is, explained why that's really not an unreasonable position to hold, and then went down a list of things that the media does consider reasonable. That is a legitimate policy disagreement. You want to slaughter a lot of people for no good reason? You don't. You know, it's just a policy disagreement, that's all. But if you favor secession, now wait a minute, which of the major newspapers told you you were allowed to think that? And you went ahead and thought it anyway? Well, what, is, what are we talking about with secession? It's when one political unit withdraws from another. It's when they say, you see this boundary? We think it should be drawn like that instead. That's really it. That's the terrifying, dangerous idea that if you advocate, they're gonna make fun of you and say what a crazy extremist you are. Now, you can advocate a policy throughout the 1990s, as the Democrats did, of keeping essential goods out of Iraq and causing all kinds of problems with malnutrition among children and premature deaths and a humanitarian catastrophe that most Americans didn't even realize occurred. You can favor that, no problem, no problemo. They're not even gonna ask you about that. But if you think this boundary line should be drawn like this rather than that, now that we're gonna come after you for. That's deranged. That's not how a normal person would think about this question. So I'm still talking to that Washington Post reporter. You see, you deranged bastard, you don't even think like a human being. Oh, this was so satisfying. So then he wrote an article about the event. And guess whose talk was the only one that was not even mentioned? <laughs> Old Woods here. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, we all have been propagandized into thinking that the United States as it is presently constituted is somehow, somehow it is, has some divine aspect to it. Like there's a sacred number of square feet that it's to be made up of, or it's a, it's, it's a sacred shape. And so if it were to be divided, it wouldn't have the sacred shape anymore. That was not the way Thomas Jefferson looked at it. You remember that nobody, Thomas Jefferson? He had some opinions on this. And Jefferson's view was that the union is a utilitarian device. Maybe it'll turn out to be for good, maybe not. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. If it doesn't work, we'll go our separate ways and try something else. He was not one of these creepy people who makes it into an object of religious veneration. The thing either works or it doesn't. We'll see what happens. But notice, even though we're taught that the status quo is sacred, that has never stopped these people from favoring more territory for the U.S. They never said, well, you know, we shouldn't get Alaska or Hawaii because then the sacred shape will be, uh, that's okay. But if you want to take some away, well, now we can't have that. I've got a sacred shape here sacred number of square feet. This is not normal, and yet everyone thinks it is. It's off the table. But when you have irreconcilable parties, and like violently irreconcilable parties, why is it simply obvious that the solution is they should stay in the same system and just duke it out until they die? Why is that the obviously humane solution? Instead of saying, well, if you have irreconcilable differences, truly irreconcilable, 
and it's obvious that one group wants to lord it over the other, why isn't the humane solution to say, well, how about you live your way and we'll live our way and move on from there? Like, why is that not even, like, we can't even talk about it. We can't even talk about it. The New York Times will tell us what we're allowed to talk about. And it's always boring crap no one wants to talk about. Now, they'll let us talk about tinkering with tax policy or, oh, if there's one thing the New York Times loves, it's conservatives who want to talk about tax reform. Oh, they love that. Because tax reform never means the taxes go down. Never, never, never. It means some kind of shell game that they use to make their donors think they're accomplishing something. And then they collect the checks from the stupid rubes and they go on their vacations. That's tax reform in the Beltway. So they love that because they know that doesn't mean anything. That we can talk all we want about the different kinds of tax reform. And it reminds me of the time Ron Paul, remember when, well, you guys are so young, some of you. I guess I'll just tell you the story from scratch. Ron Paul was on The Tonight Show once because there was a Fox News debate that he was shut out of. And in the old days, all the late night comedians didn't have the same brain. So Jay Leno thought that was unfair. So he flew Ron Paul out to, to talk about this. And he came out there and it was a great, it was a great event. And he said, they asked him about uh, tax policy. And Leno said, now you favor a flat tax, isn't that right? And he said, yeah, I, I favor a, a flat tax, but I mean real flat, like zero. <laughs> I just love that. By the way, I'll just tell you a little story in parentheses you may not have heard. Tom Cruise was backstage. This is, I'm not making this, it sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? <laughs> Tom Cruise was backstage during that episode, and he's like very, very concerned about excessive drugging of, of children and all this sort of thing and mental health issues and stuff like that. And of course, Dr. Paul's you know, totally hardcore and sound on things like that. So he approached Dr. Paul and said, you know, thank you, you know, keep hitting him hard on this and whatever. And after he walked away, international superstar Tom Cruise, Dr. Paul, who was so remote from modern culture, turned to the people with him and said, who was that young man exactly? <laughs> love that, just love that. All right, so now what I wanna do is, I wanna introduce to you two people, one of whom you almost certainly have heard of, and the other one maybe not. And as usual, the one you've heard of is terrible, and the one you haven't heard of is awesome. I mean, unfortunately, this is the world we live in, and it's been that way for hundreds of years. First, I want to say I owe an incredible debt of gratitude to a retired professor of philosophy at Emory University named Donald Livingston. Really, really smart guy, one of the greatest scholars of David Hume we have anywhere in the world, and he really helped to shape my outlook on these sorts of things, and I've been building on what he taught me uh, ever since. And he was fond of pointing out these two figures as well. The first one, the one people are less likely to have heard of, but I know there'll be a handful of nerds in here who know. And that's Johannes Althusius, who was a theorist of the Dutch Federation. These are both 17th century figures. One is Johannes Althusius. The second is Thomas Hobbes. Yeah, see, okay, a lot of people know Thomas Hobbes, okay? He had terrible ideas, that's true. And because he had terrible ideas, everybody immediately adopted them. <laughs> and I know you're gonna say to me, no, that's not true, Woods. He was describing an authoritarian regime and we don't have exclusively authoritarian regimes <laughs> around the world. Okay. Althusius wrote this work in the early 17th century called Politica. 
And the key thing about it, and as I describe it to you, you, you will start to see, as I contrast him with Hobbes, the connection to American history. According to Althusius, society is not made up of just a bunch of scattered, isolated, atomized individuals. It's not just an undifferentiated blob. It's not a mass of people. Society is, we might think of it as a series of levels. So it's not a flat plane. It's a series of levels, a series of little societies whose symbiotic relation gives us our society at large. So you start with the household. The household for Althusius is the fundamental political unit. Well, then a group of households can create a village, and then a group of villages can create a province. So you notice there are these small but ever larger groupings of people, and that society is made up of these. And when we look throughout the high Middle Ages, for example, or even, even the earlier Middle Ages, we see precisely this. Various institutions operating independently of each other, each of which having rights and liberties of their own that can't be just arbitrarily modified or canceled by any other body. So the universities had their own powers and rights. Guilds, likewise, had powers and rights. Cities had powers and rights. The church, all these institutions, and they operated symbiotically. So each of these institutions has pre-existing liberties. And no one, no one of them can bark out irresistible commands at the others. Now, there's a, a, a very, very good historian whom Liberty Fund has published his old works named Bertrand de Juvenel. And Bertrand de Juvenel pointed out that a lot of times when you look at the titles of some of these kings in European history, the full title is preposterously long. I mean, and in fact, you see an example of this, I think, when they're at least once in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they give the full title of King Arthur, King of the Britons, and he's, he's, the, he's the this of this and the protector of that and the defender of so-and-so. This long title is actually not meant to be a sign of vanity by the king. The long title means that he's part of a web of relationships, that there's a series of peoples and institutions beneath him whose powers and liberties he can't just abolish. He's the protector of those liberties. He can't arbitrarily bark out commands through a bullhorn. And I know that when we were young, we all thought that any king, any time in European history could just get away with anything he wanted to do. And that is not, that's just not true. But the thing is, as a college professor, you can, and I know this from firsthand experience, you can stand in front of a classroom all semester long and explain how the king was hemmed in by all these other competing power centers, and he was helpless to do X, Y, and Z. But on the test, they'll say the king could do whatever he wanted. It was like, what was the point of telling you any of this? <laughs> so for example, up until, it was only a couple centuries ago, really, that you started to get political bodies strong enough to impose military conscription on a regular basis and an income tax. Medieval kings couldn't have dreamed of getting away with something like that. And so here's the thing. The king is hemmed in on all sides by various competing power centers. And he has to deal with that. He's hemmed in. And if one of these power centers resists the king, this is not treason. This is a blow for liberty. So for example, medieval cities. By today's standards, medieval cities were oases of freedom in the midst of a feudal society. How did they win their liberties? They won their liberties by resisting the king. 
So the king would come to them and say, I need your help in this war. And they'd say, all right, we'll help you all right. But at the end of this, here are our demands, either pertaining to taxation or, or whatever. And he would have to give in. And nobody said, oh, the medieval cities are guilty of treason. No, that's just how society works. It's a give and take between different levels. All right, you probably see where this is going. <laughs> now we have, on the other hand, the system of Thomas Hobbes laid out in Leviathan. 1651. Thomas Hobbes will have absolutely none of what I just said. Society is indeed just a flat plane. It's just a bunch of isolated individuals with no other identities. And at the center of this society is a single infallible power center. So any subsidiary bodies beneath this power center have only those liberties that the center deigns to acknowledge. And those liberties can be canceled anytime the center chooses. So the contrast with Althusius couldn't be greater. Under Althusius, the liberties of various bodies outside the center preceded the central authority, and it was the job of the central authority, at least in principle, to protect and defend those liberties. But in the Hobbesian system, there are no rights or liberties that do not flow from the will of the sovereign, and he can modify or abolish those whenever he wants. So now under this system, where you have a single, irresistible, infallible, indestructible power center. If one of these subsidiary bodies resists the center, it's no longer a virtue. It's not to be celebrated. It's treason. Ooh. You rose up against your overlord. Oh, we can't have that. Let's give it a scary sounding name. So when you hear people today talk about nullification, which is the power of a state to resist the enforcement of, a, of an unconstitutional federal law. When you hear people call that treason, or you hear people call secession treason, feel sorry for them. Because their brains, they've been turned into automatons by absorbing these Thomas Hobbesian ideas. They don't know any better. Because as far as they know, because of the preconceptions they have, it is metaphysically impossible for any subsidiary body to have a life of its own or to exercise a power that the central authority is not authorized. They cannot conceive of this. It is a metaphysical impossibility. It's like you told them that there's a square circle. They can't make sense of it. So all they can do is scream out treason because that's another word that they've been fed in their automaton training. Treason. I don't understand a phenomenon. It's probably treason. I'll just throw that word out at people. So they're just mindlessly repeating words that have been drilled into their heads by the mouthpieces of official opinion on television. But this Hobbesian model has completely won the day, almost completely, certainly throughout the Western world and certainly since the French Revolution. So what do we have around the world? For the most part, we have centralized, indivisible, or so they think, central authorities issuing commands to all institutions below them, and they must be obeyed, lest the accusation of treason be hurled at them. Well, how has this experiment gone with the Hobbesian model of centralized states? Well, since we've had this experiment going, we've had totalitarian revolutions whose severity swamps anything anybody in his worst nightmare could have imagined. Not to mention we've had total war on a scale, again, almost impossible, impossible to imagine if you had smaller scale polities.
And then on a lesser scale, impossible levels of debt and bureaucracy. We right now in the United States, and I am sure in countries around the world, feel like we are ruled by self-perpetuating fiefdoms that seem impossible to dismantle. Look at the various federal agencies. How can these ever be reformed? And they do insane, crazy things that make no sense 24 hours a day. Rand Paul just confronted the head of uh, Health and Human Services, the secretary. The other day, you may have seen the, the video on uh, social media. I mean, who, probably maybe they've taken it down or something. But, the, but in that video, he was saying, look, what, what do you think about this Israel study? Now, look, this Israel study was discussed by everyone. This is not some obscure thing that Rand pulled out of wherever, some obscure bit of nothingness. This is a study based on a database of 2.5 million people. The Washington Post talked about it, major news outlets all over the world saying, well, we have to reckon with this. And it was talking about the robustness of natural immunity. So Rand asked the HHS secretary, you know, what do you think about that study? He hadn't even heard of it. And he's the director of HHS. He has no idea what this is. And so Rand was saying, you know, and yet you have the nerve to call the rest of us flat earthers. And you don't even know the relevant science. You're the embarrassment. You owe us an apology. Like, thank God we have somebody like that talking. If I may say something in parentheses, by the way, one of the themes that I've been harping on over the past few months, because sometimes I'm a, I like to be a, a, a good sport when I win. I don't win that much. You know, I have attached myself to a lot of causes that are going up a pretty steep hill. But occasionally, you know, occasionally I win one. You know, like Thomas Massey gets elected to Congress, I take that as a win. So, <laughs> but you'll recall there were some people who just mindlessly followed Trump who criticized Massey. Remember, because Massey wanted to have an in-person vote when they were voting on all the COVID craziness, and Trump was very unhappy about that, and so he got his hordes to go attack Thomas Massey. Massey's better than Trump on everything. I mean, basically across the board everything, on the things Trump's own people pretend to care about, and they're all attacking Massey. They don't know the first thing about him. Then COVID comes along, Massey's way better than Trump yet again, way better than Trump, and then as, as months go on, and, and now it's almost two years, he is the most vocal, he and Rand are the two most vocal public officials at the federal level, elected public officials on this, by far the best. Yeah, this is the guy you should have been cheering. And I think they all realize that now with Rand Paul. Initially they thought, well, he sounds like an isolationist to me. I think a lot of them have had the sense knocked into him after what's gone on the past five or so years, but now they maybe realize, huh, well, the guy actually has some stones. He's, he's actually not so bad. He's better than Mitt Romney, whom I helped nominate the last time for the Republicans. He's better than everybody else we've had. They've started to realize that. So now, where did uh, Rand and Massey, where'd they come from? They came from the Ron Paul revolution. We gave the world these two people who are doing all this good. All right, let's come back. We've got to come back to Althusius and Hobbes. The point is, this modern state has a terrible record. I mean, it, it is at war with human flourishing. And yet, the question of what is the proper size of the political unit? Should we have these gigantic centralized states? Is this the best way for human beings to live? That question is not even raised. 
because everyone just takes Hobbes' assumptions for granted. Now, it's true John Locke came along after Hobbes, and it's true John Locke has some criticisms of Hobbes, but even he is still thinking in terms of a single irresistible power center, and all down through almost, not, not entirely, but almost the entire list of modern political thinkers. They all think this way. They all think in terms of that Hobbesian state. And that, but yet this is not a stupid question, whether it should be possible to withdraw from a larger unit, whether subsidiary bodies should have lives of their own and liberties of their own and the ability to determine their own destiny. You can't debate something with people if their own preconceptions make it impossible for them to see the answer. Now, moreover, there is also a school of historians who say that it's precisely because we did not have a gigantic Western civilization empire that we developed the tradition of liberty and capitalism. That you had, what you had was a very large number of small political units. And each one had to be concerned if it becomes too oppressive, you can just get up and go to the next one. And this helped to put downward pressure on bureaucracies. But now, of course, as the units have gotten larger, the pressure on them by people voting with their feet has diminished. Folks, let's take a minute to thank our sponsor, BetterHelp. We're living through changes that are happening very rapidly. We're seeing people turned against each other, our society being changed in ways we can't predict, and we don't know if it'll ever turn back. And that alone is enough to give people anxiety and worry about the future. But then on top of that, there's all the things going on in people's personal lives family conflicts, relationship problems. You may have problems sleeping or problems with trauma or depression or stress or anxiety. So I recommend a service I myself have used, and that's BetterHelp. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. You can send messages, all without leaving the comfort of your home. It's convenient, professional, affordable, available for clients worldwide, in fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Well, I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com woods. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot woods. All right, now let's go to the American case and the advanced students in the room will see... Which side is the Althusian side and which side is the Hobbesian side, okay? So now, I, if I were to give a presentation on whether it's legitimate for an American state to secede and whether that is in line with the Constitution and American history, I could do that with some glib answers. I could say the Tenth Amendment resolves this question. And by the way, that argument has been used before, and there's nothing wrong with that argument. The Tenth Amendment says that the federal government has only the powers that are delegated to it. It has no power to suppress secession. It can put down insurrections, but that's not the same thing. That's when a state calls on the federal government to come in and help it put down an insurrection. That's not what secession is. And Article 1, Section 10, which talks about uh, those things that the states have voluntarily chosen not to do as part of the union, none of those says we won't secede. So there's, there's no ground for suppressing secession constitutionally. I could make that argument. I could make the argument that three states, Virginia, New York, and Rhode Island, when they joined the union, included rescission clauses whereby they could resume the powers delegated to the federal government and withdraw from this confederation. Parentheses, there are people called Straussians who try to misinterpret what these rescission clauses meant, but there's no other way to understand them. 
Virginia is very, is very clear that they retain the right to withdraw those powers they've delegated. But we'll leave aside these quickie little arguments. Let's go into the biggest, the best, the most systematic, the most convincing, and therefore never, ever, ever heard before arguments. And these are the sorts of things you would hear in a US history class if we lived in a reasonable society. I'm not pulling out things that are debatable, that are obscure. I mean, I'm gonna be using documents like the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the US Constitution. I mean, these are not exactly things I found in some, you know, some surreptitious publishing house with, you know, with a underlined font because they don't have italics or something. I mean, these are really well-known sources here. So let's start the question, where in the American system does sovereignty lie? Now, when we say sovereignty, if a body is sovereign, that means what it says goes and nobody can challenge it. That's what makes it sovereign. So when the American colonies were colonies and the, the king and England rule over them, the colonies were not sovereign because they could be overruled. So that's what sovereignty is, that being able to have your will be felt and no one can challenge it. So where is that in the US? Is the federal government the sovereign? Is the president the sovereign? Is the US Congress, is that the sovereign? How about the state governments? Are they the sovereigns? None of those are the sovereigns in the American system. The peoples of the states are the sovereigns. And we can see this, so notice, notice, if what I'm telling you about the peoples of the states being the sovereigns is correct, then the United States is an Althusian system because there's no one single sovereign power center. There are groups of sovereigns, the people of Massachusetts, the people of New Hampshire, the people of Virginia. Those are the sovereigns. Now there are two versions of what the United States is all about. There's the nationalist version that is put forth by Daniel Webster, by Abraham Lincoln, and at least implicitly by Alexander Hamilton. Then there is the compact theory that's put forth by Thomas Jefferson and lesser known people, people like St. George Tucker and Abel Upshur. The nationalist theory holds that the United States is one single indivisible whole with one single indivisible power center. That's the Hobbesian model. So that's why they can't even conceive of a legitimate secession because for them it's metaphysically impossible. The United States is not a grouping together of disparate societies for practical utilitarian purposes. It is a single indivisible blob. Secession is, is legitimately inconceivable to someone who thinks like this. It must simply be, instead of saying, well, this sovereign body has chosen to withdraw from a confederation of states that it used its sovereignty to join in the first place, they don't look at it that way. They look at it as a bunch of individuals over here are disobeying the center. That's the way they look at it. So when you have these two competing points of view, you know, one of them's gonna win out. Can't have them both simultaneously. So if you have absorbed the preconceptions from Hobbes that have been drilled into us since junior high, you're gonna to gravitate toward that nationalist theory and you're gonna seek out evidence to try to support that because you can't think of any other way society could be arranged. By contrast, if by some miracle you got introduced to this Althusian model that I've been describing, you're gonna be attracted to the compact theory, which holds that the United States is not a single blob, 
but a collection of societies, exactly analogous to the theory of Althusius. And the founding fathers were quite fond of the Dutch Federation about which Althusius wrote. Now, the evidence is entirely in support of the compact theory. I don't mean like a little bit or the preponderance of it. It's entirely in favor of the compact theory, which is why my friend Brian McClanahan says, we shouldn't call it the compact theory. We should call it the compact fact. It's not a theory. All the evidence is there. So for example, look at the Declaration of Independence. It does not refer to the independence of a single blob. It speaks of free and independent states. Now in the American context, we hear states and we naturally think, you know, Virginia, Florida, Maine. We think of states like that. But of course, that's not what they mean in the Declaration of Independence. They mean state in the, in the standard dictionary definition. They mean states like France, you know, state like Spain. That's what they mean. So when they say these are free and independent states, you know, who can do all the things that such states may of right do, they mean countries. That's what they mean. So they're, they're speaking in the plural, free and independent states. Well, how about the British in the Treaty of Paris? The British do not acknowledge the independence of a single blob called the United States of America. They recognize the independence of a collection of states which they then proceed to name one by one. We see this also in various treaties that were entered into during the uh, War for Independence. The reference is always to individual states never to some single whole called the United States. And by the way, a lot of what I'm telling you is in, I have a book called Nullification. I have a chapter on the compact theory because I wanted there to be a short but information-packed overview of this material because the typical defense of the compact theory runs 100 plus pages. Like Abel Upshur's work on it, it's so great, but very few people are gonna read it. So I wanted to have like a 15, 20 page thing just mercilessly without mercy, pounding away at the evidence here. Or the colonies slash states engaged in activities we associate with sovereignty. They were individually doing things we associate with sovereignty. They weren't deferring to some indivisible blob. So for example, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and South Carolina outfitted ships to cruise against the British. Ticonderoga was taken by the troops of Connecticut. In New Hampshire, the, the executive was authorized to issue letters of mark and reprisal. And then very interestingly, in 1776, it was declared that the crime of treason would be thought of not as being perpetrated against the states united into an indivisible blob, but against the states individually. Then in the Articles of Confederation, there's that glorious Article 2. Article 2 says that the states retain their sovereignty, freedom, and independence. Well, they obviously had that sovereignty to begin with if they're retaining it in 1781. Then think about how the Constitution was ratified. If this were a Hobbesian regime of a single undifferentiated mass, we would have had one national vote on the Constitution. But notice we did not have that, did we? To the contrary, we had the individual ratifications of each of the states involved assembled in convention because part of Republican theory at that time held that the highest voice of the people is expressed through the specially elected convention. And remember, who is the sovereign? The sovereign would be the peoples of the states, and in this case expressed through their conventions in each state. In the Constitution itself, you will not find one case 
in which the United States is referred to in the singular. It's always referred to in the plural. Why? Because we are an Althusian federation. We are a collection of societies. We're not a Hobbesian blob. And then very importantly, and this is the one most likely to be overlooked, because this I will grant you is a more obscure source. But there was a great 18th century international lawyer named Emmerich de Vattel, and he wrote a book called The Law of Nations in 1758. And in that book, he said that sovereign states can enter into federations, like the one that the colonies ultimately entered into when they be, way became states. They can enter into federations like this without compromising their sovereignty. So it's not that, well, they're sovereign, and then they ratify the Constitution, their sovereignty disappears. That's not how sovereignty works. They used their sovereignty to join the Union, and they can use that sovereignty to withdraw from the Union because that's how it works. The peoples of the states are the sovereigns. So they can exercise that sovereignty not just by acceding to a federation, but by seceding from it. So that, to me, once we get these facts all put together, shows that secession follows naturally. It follows as a natural consequence of the compact theory. But I still want to throw in one more one more small, quick, lightning round battery of arguments, and they all boil down to this. It's true that Aristotle says that the argument from authority is the weakest. The argument from authority is when you say, I believe such and such because this guy's real smart and he believes it. Okay, that's not the best argument. And boy, we've been subjected to that for the past 18 months, haven't we? So I'll grant you that that is not definitive, but it's at least suggestive sometimes when you consider who some of the authorities are. So I already mentioned Thomas Jefferson, who referred to the right of secession repeatedly. In the 1790s, he was telling his friend John Taylor of Caroline that the time for secession had not yet come. Now, he didn't say secession is metaphysically impossible because we're a single indivisible blob, just like Hobbes wanted us to be. He said it has not yet come. And then likewise, in the early 19th century, more than once he said that if we have states who do not wish to remain in the Union, we ought to let them go in peace. Uh, Governor Morris, who was an important New York Federalist, also supported secession. John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams said, if the time should ever come, he says it extremely elegantly, more elegantly than old Woods would say it, but that if some states should prefer to leave, we should better say goodbye to them than to coerce them. Because in coercing them, we would be departing from the voluntary union our fathers gave us and creating something very different. William Lloyd Garrison, probably the best known abolitionist in the United States, favored secession. He favored the northern states seceding so they wouldn't be tainted by association with southern slavery and they would no longer have to return runaway slaves under the Fugitive Slave Clause. Who was the best known foreign observer of the United States? Well, in the 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville who wrote Democracy in America. And he said, if a state wanted to secede from the Union, from the United States, it would be very difficult to disprove its right to do so. Hmm. And then secession talk was part of the national conversation. So New England at the time of the Louisiana Purchase was talking about secession. At the time of Jefferson's embargo, they were talking about it. It was implied at the Hartford Convention in 1814, where they said, uh, if our demands aren't met, we're gonna meet again. And talk further, and a lot of people took that to mean they were going to consider secession. So it's taken for granted as something that can be talked about. So in conclusion, the compact theory is just correct. I mean, it's just the evidence is just there. 
So now the question is, what do we do with it? So we're not, in other words, we're not at war with our own history as Americans if we favor secession. We're not at war with it. And we don't necessarily, we're not, we don't favor violence because there's nothing inherently violent about one entity separating from another. There's no violence when Norway and Sweden separated. I bet a lot of people didn't even know that happened. Well, it did, okay? That's how quietly it happened, all right? There are many cases of this. I mean, the, the Soviet Republic, Slovenia, uh, come up with a bunch of examples. There's no reason that there has to be violence or anything like that. This is very much within the American tradition. It's just not taught to people. And now we can all speculate as to why it's not taught. I don't think it's because the textbook authors meet in a smoke-filled room and they say, how can we deceive the little bastards? But, but on the other hand, if they did meet in a smoke-filled room and wonder what would they write in the textbooks if they wanted to deceive the little bastards, I don't see how the textbooks would be any different from what they are now. So most people aren't aware of this, and most people think it's not really an option. That is to say, until recently. Maybe you saw a poll not too long ago, like within the past week, where a lot of people on both sides are saying, we could actually see breaking the country up. We could imagine that. And maybe we, now, it doesn't solve all problems, and I, I know you can nitpick me to death about what would happen next, and I understand that. But the key thing is for us to think outside of a box that has been put together for us by the New York Times editorial board. You know, that is our job here. I already have the Republican Party that's gonna go out there and give pretty speeches about limited government and this and that and the other thing, okay? I already have that. If I wanna hear pretty speeches about that and slogans from 1984, uh, I meant the year, not the book. <laughs> I can get that from the Republican Party. But from the Libertarian Party, I don't want people who are gonna say, well, we could say X, Y, and Z, but that'll scare people away. Yeah, I think what's scaring people away is more and more the same damn thing over and over and feeling like no one's gonna stop it. I mean, honest to goodness, I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but honestly, the thing that really does scare me the most is the idea that we'll just continue to coast along this crazy road forever. So if somebody comes along and says, I think we need to take a detour, that's not as scary sounding as it used to be, especially when the detour simply says peace. We're not gonna defeat you and you're not gonna defeat us. That's obvious by now. We've got a division here and it's not gonna be overcome by you threatening us or you doing this or that because we're just gonna resist you. So what if we just put our arms down, return to our homes and carry on in peace? That's our message. And I, or at least I think it ought to be our message. And again, I could imagine there being a libertarian party that spends the next few years talking about the importance of, and by the way, if you're involved in local initiatives that make small bits of progress, in no way do I intend to disparage that. Because anywhere you can push back, you should push back. I'm talking about at the national level, I could imagine the national party spending years talking about civil asset forfeiture and um, occupational licensing. And, and these things are important. I, I don't favor them. Maybe I'm against them even more than those people are, okay? I'm dead set against that. But right now, we're watching the acceleration of just the, the worst nightmares we've had. I mean, th th things that some of us said might happen, and the others said, there's no way that'll ever happen. And now it's happening super fast. Like every day you wake up and say, what have they taken away from me today? 
our messaging can't be civil asset forfeiture is a big problem. Yes, it is. And, and once every 5,000 messages we put out, we'll talk about that. But the other 4,999 have to be, look, we have tens of millions of people out there who may indeed disagree among themselves on major issues. But one thing they do agree on is live and let live. Live the life you want to live. Live the life you want to live. And I'm not going to bother you. And we'll all live in peace and trade with each other and be happy and then tell nasty stories about each other behind closed doors. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We won't use violence against each other. And there was a time when I would have thought to myself, well, the threat, or at least a major threat in the country is the right wing that wants to impose its vision on the country. I don't really see that that's the problem at this point. The so-called right wing, whoever and wherever it is, is in complete disarray. They, they don't know what to do. They have not been prepared for this moment at all. All they have to show for themselves is a bunch of think tanks with big budgets who've been writing about a lot of policy manuals that have gone right in the garbage. Most of these people have no idea what to do. If they could just be left alone, they would consider that an unbelievable blessing. And it's time to connect with people like that, who maybe have been silent for a long time. The kind of people who voted for Ron Paul and who had never voted before, Why'd they vote for him? Because he was totally different. He didn't even try to sound like them. He didn't use phrases like, American interests are at stake in the... He didn't talk like that. He didn't talk like a plastic man. He didn't talk like an automaton. His hair was pretty good, but it wasn't like Mitt Romney's. But, <laughs> but that told you, he's an actual guy. And then he would go on television, they would ask him really controversial things that any other candidate would have just walked away from, well, that's not really the issue. We're Today we're facing educational spending problems. No, he would just answer the damn question over and over. He would do, and he would see this guy is for real. And yeah, he attracted some enemies. He attracted some bitter, horrible, disgusting human beings. When you see some of the things they say about Ron Paul and the way they've treated him, it's unbelievable the guy is so calm and collected all the time. I mean, old Woods here would not be able to maintain that kind of countenance under these circumstances. But he attracted, whoa, oh my. <laughs> okay, parentheses, I have to tell a quick Ron Paul story related to the power going out. I have a power going out story and then I'll wrap up. The power going out story was, most of you are too old to have been at the Young Americans for Liberty event in early August. Somebody hissing that? <laughs> All right. Anyway, but a handful of you might have been. So I was supposed to go out there and after my talk say that, you know, Ron Paul will be joining us um, via the video hookup. And this was going to be a big disappointment to everybody that he had to be on video. But actually he was here. We were lying to the little, yeah. And so, so I did this whole thing. And they said, and then the power is going to go out the video will go out, all the lights will go out, and it'll look like some big problem happened. And then all of a sudden, the lights will start going up and the music's gonna come. It was Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. And the real Ron Paul walks out to the podium. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Whereas, there's no Ron Paul here. So here it's just, the power went out at my conference and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. So I'll just say, if we're not going to talk about the untalkable and say the unsayable. There is nobody else who's, sometimes you think, well, if I don't do it, somebody will come along and fix all this. The somebodies are the people in this room.
And that's why we got to get off our asses and do it. Thanks, everybody. All right, folks, check out the Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party, lpmisescaucus.com. That's L-P-M-I-S-E-S-C-A-U-C-U-S.com. I'll have the link at tomwoods.com slash 1989. These are great people doing great work to try to make the Libertarian Party not be such an embarrassment to the concept of libertarianism, and it deserves our support. So go check them out, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.